1: Our view of the history of philosophy, science, or really human thought in general, have a tendency to be rather biased. I can't tell you how many times I've watched something like a YouTube video where they go through the history of philosophy and present a rather one-sided and very narrow picture of the actual history. Uh, We love to talk about people like Plato and Aristotle, or John Locke and Nietzsche and Kierkegaard, and sometimes also Confucius, if we're generous. But this view of presenting history, starting with the ancient Greeks and then moving on to the Renaissance and then the Enlightenment and all the way up to today, is a very Eurocentric view of history and the history of philosophy. And it ignores a very significant point in time and a philosophical and scientific culture that was very significant I'm talking, of course, about the philosophical works of the early Islamic world, and not only were these philosophers who are very significant and important in their own right, writing on themes like optics and astronomy, metaphysics, music, uh, medicine, uh, all these different kinds of fields, but they are also important because they are the ones who often preserved the old Greek traditions and then transmitted it or handed it over indirectly to the European thinkers, which then led to things like the Renaissance. Indeed, a lot of people argue that there wouldn't be a Renaissance without these Arabic and Islamic philosophers. And yet not many of these individuals are mentioned today by people when discussing something like the history of philosophy. A lot of us in the so-called West don't realize how much we are indebted to these people and how much they have affected the very culture and world that we live in. I've made a few videos on this subject in the past. I made, for example, one video on Ibn Sina, or a Persian philosopher, also known as Avicenna, a very prominent great figure. Uh, I made another video on the Andalusian philosopher Ibn Tufail and his masterpiece, Hai Ibn Yaqsan. And then finally, I also made one on Ibn Khaldun, the historian and philosopher. Uh, and all of these can be found on my channel. Uh, But today I'm going to be rewinding the clock a bit and talk about the very inception of Muslim and Arabic philosophy in what is known as the translation movement. And particularly of two uh, most important and prominent of these early philosophers, al-Kindi and al-Farabi. Nothing ever really happens in a vacuum, and Muslim and Arabic philosophy is no exception. What needs to be understood from the get-go is that these people are deeply indebted to the ancient Greeks and their philosophical traditions and writings. And that is not to say that these people didn't have original ideas or anything like that, but uh, all those ideas are based on the sort of groundwork that the Greeks uh, sort of built. Uh, and also on the Islamic sources, like the Quran, for example. And this includes people like Plato and Socrates and Galen and, perhaps above all, Aristotle, but also some later traditions, which will become clear pretty soon. With the inception and spread of the Islamic religion, the, Muslims, the early Muslims conquered most of the known world at the time, the Middle East and North Africa and Persia all the way to Afghanistan. Um, it is said or thought that Muhammad is to have said that you are to seek knowledge all the way to China. And a lot of these early Muslims really took that message to heart. Uh, very early on, a lot of different sciences and fields of thought started to appear in this new uh, culture, this new empire. Everything from how to understand God through theology and jurisprudence and uh, and, and uh, mysticism and a bunch of different Uh, movements uh, were heavily discussed at the time. But there was one group of people who were particularly interested in what was known as the ancient wisdoms, that is, you know, the Greek text, texts written by old sages from another country in Greece who were sort of concealed by a language barrier because they didn't speak Greek, obviously. Um, And these people who really cultivated this knowledge later became known as the Falsapha Tradition which is really just an Arabized version of the word philosophia. And this would give birth to some of the most famous thinkers in Middle Eastern history. In the late 8th and 9th centuries, under the Abbasid Caliphate, there was a great flourishing of learning in the new capital, Baghdad. One of the caliphs, either maybe Harun al-Rashid or his son al-Ma'mun, established uh, uh, an institution that's known as the Bayt al-Hikmah, which means the House of Wisdom, which was a place in Baghdad where intellectual discussions were being had regarding different subjects. One of the most significant of these activities in this Beit al-Hikmah, this House of Wisdom, was what is known as the translation movement, in which a lot of texts were gathered from all around the world and then translated uh, by, or the translation were led by some of these individuals that I would discuss. And the Greeks were particularly... uh, popular at the time, because they had a pretty good reputation. A whole myriad of texts were gathered in Baghdad and then translated into Arabic. Now, before we get into actual philosophy, we need to lay some groundwork first. Something that it's very important to understand and, and know about is a philosophical school of thought or movement known as Neoplatonism. Uh, this is a school that's usually traced back to an Alexandrian philosopher called Plotinus, who lived in the, well, around the 3rd century AD. And the school that followed him considered itself to be part of the the, the sort of Platonic uh, school, the Platonic uh, uh, heritage, so to speak. Uh, But there are a lot of things that differ it, or, or a lot of things in which it differ from the philosophy of Plato himself, which is why it's considered its very own school. The philosophy of Neoplatonism isn't easy to explain in simple terms, but um, a general outlook can be said to be something like this. Uh, There is something called the one, an absolute principle that is beyond space and time, being and non-being, and is characterized by absolute perfection. This one flows over or emanates the created world in a few steps. The first emanation is often called the first intellect, that is, pure intellectualizing, and the highest form of being whose very nature is self-reflexive thinking. Then there is the universal soul, and finally the phenomenal world that we experience. In fact, many of the terms that would be discussed by the Arabic philosophers were borrowed from the Greeks and return as important concepts things like intellect, soul, being, form, matter, and so on. The school of Neoplatonism, in some sense, tried to reconcile the philosophies of Plato and Aristotle, sometimes claiming that they were actually trying to say the same thing, and thus they wrote commentaries on both their works. This movement of Neoplatonism and their ideas that I just mentioned, as well as their interpretations of Aristotle in particular, would have a lasting and significant effect on the later Muslim tradition. Moving back to Baghdad in the late 8th and early 9th centuries, the translation movement was by now in full force, and a lot of different texts were being translated. This movement was led by a few individuals, among them a Christian thinker uh, Hunayn ibn Ishaq, and later his son Ishaq ibn Hunayn, They weren't too creative with the names back then. But an even more famous group of translators were gathered around a Muslim thinker, and one that would become known later as the very first of the Arabic philosophers. And his name was Abu Yusuf Yaqob ibn Ishaq al-Kindi. We don't actually know too much about Al Kindi and his personal life. We know that he was from Arabic descent and was maybe born in Kufa, where he seems to have received his basic education. Uh, but he then moved, sort of, he moved up in the world, so to speak, and eventually moved to the newly established capital, Baghdad. And there, he worked for and became pretty close with some of the famous Abbasid caliphs, like Al mahmun and Al Mutazim. Um, And they employed him to the newly established House of Wisdom, the Beit al-Hikmah, where he was charged with uh, leading the translation of Greek texts. It was through this work that he also gathered his own knowledge and a lot of the sciences and philosophies that he would later himself become known for. Uh, He seems to have been a pretty respected man during most of his life. Uh, He was even employed to be the personal tutor to the caliph al-Mu'tazim's son, which must have been one of the most prestigious jobs you could ever have. Not only did Al-Kindi lead the translation of Greek texts, but he also wrote a lot of his own philosophical works. Um, It's thought that he wrote hundreds of works, a huge body of texts in a number of different fields, including metaphysics, ethics, medicine, psychology, mathematics, astronomy, music, and optics. But sadly, very few of these texts survive today. One of the things that al Kindi tried to do was to take these Greek teachings, these Greek philosophies, which he considered to be, in some cases, universal truths, and then apply them to the newly sort of Islamic framework. He tackled uh, questions of theology, like the, the Kalam theologians' discussions on the nature of God and the soul, and he argued that the Quran, the sort of sacred scripture of the Muslims, was in complete harmony with Greek philosophy. While the Greek and, by this point, the Arabic philosophers uh, dealt with a lot of different subjects, Al-Kindi and a lot of his contemporaries considered one of these fields to be especially important and especially noble, and that is what could be called rational theology, that is, philosophy that deals with God. And to Al-Kindi, metaphysics was primarily and almost entirely made up of theology. So he he, he sort of equated uh, metaphysics with theology. He writes in one of his surviving works called On First Philosophy, that the noblest part of philosophy and the highest in degree is first philosophy, by which I mean the science of the first truth, who is the cause of all truth. To him, studying the Greek text can only benefit the Muslims and their religion. In his metaphysical works, he tackles very difficult questions about the nature of God and how God relates to creation. In the religion of Islam, the basic theological principle is something known in Arabic as Tawheed, which means that there is no God but God, as proclaimed in the Shahada, and also that God is absolutely one. Now, Al-Kindi affirms this theology in his writings and applies what's known as a negative theology, that is, that nothing can be said or described about God. God doesn't have qualities or attributes like human beings does, or in the sense that human being does, because that would compromise his oneness. And after all, God is, as I said, absolutely one in every aspect. This isn't an uncommon position to hold in Islamic philosophy at all, it's quite common, but al-Kindi was probably one of the first to explain it or talk about it in a philosophical language. He further presents the idea that everything in the world, in the created world, is made up of both oneness and manyness. So you talk about something like you or me, I am one because I am a person, I am a concrete object by by the sense of being a oneness, but I'm also manyness in the sense that I, am consist, I consist of many different parts, parts of my body, parts of my attributes and qualities. I can also say, for example, that I am 25 years old, which also implies a manyness, a multiplicity, because there is the concept of me and then also the concept of time, which, is, which separates, that that creates a duality in that sense. Nothing in the created world is absolutely one, but stems from something that is essentially one, and that one is God. Therefore, no category that is applied to created things can also be applied to God, because anything that's applied to created things, they also have manyness contained within them, and God doesn't. He himself writes the following... The true one possesses no matter or form, quantity or quality or relation, and is not described by any of the other categories, nor does he possess genus, difference, individual, property, common accident or motion. He is therefore nothing but pure oneness. This problem of God's attributes or qualities that are described in the Quran was one of the most hotly debated issues in theology at the time, with some arguing that those Quran verses that describe his qualities should be read metaphorically or symbolically, and others that wanted to read it literally. Um, Al-Kindi sort of arrives at the scene here with a strongly negative theology that is perhaps you could say more in line with the school of the Mu'tazila, for example, even though he disagrees with them on several other points as well. What he then says about God's relationship to creation and the very process of creation is very original and interesting and something that hasn't really been repeated much later on in, in theology and philosophy. He argues that when God creates something, when he creates the world or creates things, he's actually bestowing oneness upon them and thus making you know that oneness, creating that oneness which makes a thing a thing. Now remember, everything in the world, he argues, consists of both manyness and oneness. Without the oneness of me, I wouldn't exist, there wouldn't be a me. So what God is doing is he's bestowing oneness, he's giving things oneness, which is his own essence, he's giving his own essence of oneness to things, and thus they exist, they are created. Another controversial topic in these circles at the time was the question of the eternity of the world. Is the world created at a specific point in time, as seems to be implied by the Quran, or has it always existed eternally? Um, Now, the Muslim philosophers, or those belonging to the Falsafat tradition, usually argue that the world is indeed eternal, and followed Aristotle in that regard. Uh, But they were harshly criticized by a lot of other theologians and thinkers. For example, uh, one very famous example is uh, Abu Hamid al-Ghazali, uh, theologian and Sufi and thinker from the uh, 11th and 12th century, and he listed this doctrine of the eternal of the other world as one of the reasons behind him calling some of these philosophers, like Ibn Sina, a uh, kafir or unbelievers, um, alongside a couple of other factors as well. What is interesting about Al-Kindi is that he sort of breaks this trend of the philosophical tradition, although breaking the trend before it actually existed, since he's the first philosopher. But he argues that the world is created at a specific point in time in God, and that time thus must have a beginning. Following the Neoplatonic system that I mentioned earlier, he also discusses the concept of the human intellect and soul, Um, The first intellect, that principle that is the first emanation or creation of the One, is distinct from human individual intellect, but they have an important relationship. While humans can potentially know things like universal concepts and uh, perceive things through their senses, they can't actually come to know things without being given that knowledge by the universal intellect. In the book The Cambridge Companion to Arabic Philosophy, Peter Adamson uses a very good metaphor of a piece of wood and fire. The wood can potentially be hot, just as the human intellect can potentially know universal concepts. But it requires something like fire, for example, in this case the universal intellect, to make it hot. He also views the soul, al-Kindi that is, he views the soul as something clearly immaterial and separated from the body. The goal of life for the individual human is to disassociate his soul as much as possible from being entangled with the physical body, which only leads to suffering and instead focusing on the intellectual side of the soul in order to reach the entirely intelligible world after death since the soul is separated from the body and thus survives. Echoing many mystics and prophets, he argues that it's no use focusing on the physical world or physical life, as everything in this world can be taken away. Instead, we should focus on intellectual activity, which is the ultimate source of happiness. As mentioned earlier, Alkindi also had a strong interest in what we would know today as natural science, or just science. Um, but of course, at these times, philosophy and science in the sense that as today, wasn't really separated or considered two different fields. But among these interests, he was particularly also interested in music. He appears to have been a musician and an oud player, which of course gives him extra credit in my book. Um, and he wrote a lot of texts and works on music. In fact, music would be considered by Al-Kindi and also, following his, his example, later on considered to be part of the category of mathematics. He, for example, discusses the therapeutic uses of music in sort of health and so on. And uh, the study of music generally would become a very important and prominent part of Muslim and Arabic philosophy and al-Kindi kind of laid the groundwork for that as well. The relationship between the philosophers and what is sometimes conceived of as orthodox Islam is sometimes described as being rather shaky and sometimes even hostile. It is true that some philosophers later on, and at this early stage as well, were criticized by individuals like Al-Ghazali that I talked about. But to talk about an orthodoxy, especially at this stage, is very anachronistic and creates some problems. Even if Al-Kindi's ideas doesn't always jive too well with what became known as orthodoxy, Later, we must remember that at this time, a lot of different ideas, religious ideas, were being tossed around, Uh, nothing was clearly formed, and Al-Kindi represents one of these movements. Al-Kindi was a devout Muslim. He wrote many works where he used his philosophy to comment on and interpret the Quran. One of his missions was to bring the knowledge of the ancients to benefit the Muslims and their understanding of God and scripture. He didn't view philosophy and revelation as being in opposition to each other at all, but quite the opposite, that they complemented each other. He argued that the truth that is reached by philosophers and on one side, and on prophets on the other, is in fact the same truth. The only difference being that for prophets, that knowledge is more wide and, and, and sort of fuller, and is also received instantly without any sort of intellectual s- strivings. While for a philosopher, reaching that truth takes many years of study and education, and even then it isn't as complete as that truth that the, that the prophet receives. But the truth in itself remains the same, and thus revelation and philosophy to al-Kindi and a lot of his followers um, were not in contradiction to each other at all. While he seems to have been close with caliphs like al-Ma'mun and al-Mu'tazim, some of the later caliphs that followed uh, didn't look as kindly to his ideas, and certain theological movements started to rise in power that were a lot more hostile to him. According to some sources, it appears that Al-Kindi lost much of his status and and reputation by the end of his life, and he died around the year 873. Interestingly, despite of his important contribution to the translation movement, a lot of his own works fell into obscurity until fairly recently. Um, Part of the reason for this is that he was overshadowed by some of his successors, one of which was, of course, the monumentous and very famous Ibn Sina. But there was another one, an earlier philosopher, who would sort of carry on the legacy that Al-Kindi started, and further develop the inherited Greek tradition with such competence that he became known later as the second teacher after Aristotle. This man was Abu Nasr Muhammad ibn Muhammad, but he's better known by the name Al-Farabi. Similarly to Al-Kindi, the information on the personal life of Al-Farabi is rather sparse, um, he was likely from the larger Persian region, possibly from Farab or Khurasan. He traveled a lot, including to Damascus and Aleppo and Cairo and Egypt, which was by that time ruled by the Ismaili Fatimid dynasty. Um, but he spent uh, most of his time, at least his intellectual life, writing most of his work in the Abbasid uh, capital of Baghdad. He seems to have had some contact with the ruling elite and the caliphs of Baghdad, but not to the extent of al-Kindi. He wrote a few works for ministers here and there, but he probably wasn't dining with the caliphs, let's say. In Baghdad, he worked on a lot of philosophical works and ideas, and he was quite closely acquainted with a lot of Christian thinkers, some of which were his students. Al-Farabi's religious affiliation has been discussed and debated, some claiming that he may have been a Shia, others that he was a Sunni, but at least in most likelihood he identified as a Muslim. In fact, when he writes historically on the subject in Appearance of Philosophy, one of his works, he seemingly criticizes some of the church fathers by stating that Then the teaching, meaning Greek philosophy, came to an end in Rome, while it continued in Alexandria, until the king of the Christians looked into the matter. The bishops assembled and took counsel together on which parts of Aristotle's teachings were to be left in place and which were to be discontinued. They formed the opinion that the books on logic were to be taught up to the end of the assertoric figures, but not what comes after it, since they thought that that would harm Christianity. He then explains that teaching the rest of the logical works remained private until the coming of Islam. In fact, like Al-Kindi, Al-Farabi's mission was similar in the sense that he wanted to synthesize the Greek traditions of Aristotle and his later Alexandrian commentators with his contemporary Muslim environment and the intellectual discussions and theological discussions that were being had at the time. Although the conclusions that he draws and a lot of his philosophy differs dramatically from his predecessors, and in fact Al-Farabi would in a lot of ways eclipse completely Al-Kindi's works. He doesn't, however, seem to have been very well known at all during his own lifetime. Like I said, he had some contacts with the ruling elite, but he wasn't a world-famous, renowned scholar by any stretch. Yet his works and philosophy is today considered very significant in the development of Muslim philosophy, and of course are intellectually interesting and valuable in their own right as well. About half a century after Al-Farabi, the perhaps most famous Muslim philosopher of all time, Ibn Sina, wrote that he could never understand Aristotle's works until he read Al-Farabi's commentaries on them. He was incredibly important in handing down the knowledge of the Greeks to the Arabic-speaking world and influenced thinkers like Ibn Sina, they already mentioned, uh, but also the Jewish philosopher Maimonides and, and many, many more. Again, like Al-Kindi, Al-Farabi was a polymath. He wrote on logic, mathematics, metaphysics, music, psychology, and even political philosophy. We will go through a couple of the more juicy of these, and we will start like we did last time with al-Farabi's metaphysics. There's a lot to unpack here, and and not a lot of modern research has been done on Al-Farabi's philosophy yet. But it is clear that he, much like his predecessor, follows the Neoplatonic system, where the first cause, which Al-Farabi identifies with God, emanates into lesser modes of being. His original contribution to this system is that he includes or incorporates the Ptolemaic cosmological astronomical system into it in a way that is both baffling and incredibly interesting. He divides this process of emanation from the one or the first cause to the first intellect and soul and so on uh, into six principles or stages. The first is the first cause, or God, followed by secondary causes, or secondary intellects. What Al-Farabi does here is to identify these intellects with the nine celestial spheres of the Ptolemaic system of astronomy. In this view, the heavens are made up of spheres that are associated with different planets um, that were then known, like Mars, Jupiter, and, well, the Sun, because the Sun was considered a planet at that point. To Al-Farabi, these are all secondary intellects that descend in the process of emanation from the first cause until we reach the so-called sublunar world, that is the sphere below the moon. Here we find the third principle, the active intellect, followed by the fourth soul, then five, form, and lastly six, matter the different secondary intellects that are associated with the nine celestial spheres are also sort of identified as the angels of uh, theology and revelation, which sort of places this philosophy very neatly within a familiar monotheistic framework, which is very smart, obviously. It may all sound very crazy, and it Kind of is, but it's also a very smart and interesting way of incorporating a lot of different ideas and sort of themes and thoughts that were popular at the time. The first cause, or God, is one alone, and much like Al-Kindi, he sort of uh, uses a negative theology to talk about God. But he differs from Al-Kindi in a significant way in his view of what metaphysics is. Remember, to Al-Kindi, metaphysics is by definition theology. It is the first philosophy, the study of God. Whereas for Al-Farabi, and also for Ibn Sina and later thinkers, metaphysics is simply the study of being, of existence itself. His psychology or the study of the soul and really everything else that he writes is then based on this, very prin- this metaphysical principle with the, with the emanation of the different spheres and intellects. He develops a kind of teleological ideal where everything in the world has a specific purpose or goal in mind for its creation. The goal for the human being is constant intellectualizing. In other words, we as rational beings are to develop our intellect from being merely physical to eventually reach a perfection of intellecting, and thus unite with the active intellect. That is, the intellect that is associated with the sphere under the moon, the sublunar world. You'll remember that this is known as the third principle in the process of emanation from the first cause. And this active intellect, this third principle, is very important for the psychology, the philosophy of psychology for Al-Farabi. The mind of the human being is dependent on this intellect, and all our intellectualizing, our intellecting, comes from it. To Al-Farabi, the active intellect is what causes the human being to think. Here he uses the metaphor of light and vision. The active intellect, in this case, is the light that gives the potential of vision the sort of ability to actually see things. He writes, Sun gives vision to light, and by the light acquired from the sun, vision actually sees, when before it had only the potential to see. By that light, vision sees the sun itself, which is the cause for it actually seeing, and furthermore actually sees the colors which previously were only potentially the objects of vision. The vision that was potentially thereby becomes actual. Thus it is with the rational human mind and the active intellect. It leads the mind to think rationally, and also through that rationality, being able to live virtuously and act according to right and wrong. Eventually the human mind becomes like the active intellect, and ultimate happiness can be achieved. Perhaps it shouldn't be surprising that a philosopher considers philosophy itself to be the key to happiness, but I have a hard time accepting the notion that if we want to be happy, we should think more. But this concept of happiness and well-being carries over nicely to one of the most interesting aspects of al-Farabi's philosophy and his works, which is his sort of ethical and moral ideas, and what we could even call a kind of political philosophy. He wrote several works on this subject, the best known of which is a book called Al-Medina al-Fadila, or The Virtuous City. And he has a wonderful way of discussing leadership and rulership in a way that I think is rhetorically quite brilliant. Now he accepts the notion that the body and the soul are separate, like a lot of philosophers would, Uh, and both of these faculties can become ill or sick. Now when the body is sick, you go see a physician. And thus the role of the physician is to look after the health of the human body, the bodies of individuals. Now the political leader, like a king or a ruler or whatever you want to have it, to Al-Farabi is like a physician to the soul. Thus it is the job of the statesman to look after the souls of the individuals in his society. The virtuous regime or society and the best kind of society is one where the souls of its inhabitants are as healthy as possible. He explains himself that the one who cures souls is the statesman and he is also called the king. What is happiness of the soul then, you may ask? Well, to al-Farabi this is distinguished by always acting in a good manner, always doing what's good and avoiding anything that is evil or wicked. Now, of course, we can get into discussions about ethics and what constitutes good and evil, but to Al-Farabi this is sort of based on ideas that it was handed down by Aristotle and also based on a lot of the religious doctrines and religious moral ideas that were prominent at his time. He then also lists a number of different political systems under which people live or have lived historically, including democracy, and tries to conclude which is the best one. He understood that the ideal virtuous society he was envisioning was next to impossible, but still held it as a principle that should be strived for, one where the ultimate, of, ultimate happiness of its citizens are in focus. This is the ideal society, one where the citizens are as healthy as possible in terms of their souls. A subject that was most important to Al-Farabi was logic, it was the prerequisite for everything else that I've discussed, from metaphysics to physics to ethics and politics and psychology, everything was based on logic, this was incredibly important to him. And on this subject he also tackles the question of revelation, much like Al-Kindi did, but in a rather different way. The philosophers, through logic primarily and demonstrative proofs, can attain perfect truth and complete certitude. But this knowledge, this perfect truth, is only available to a certain group of people who have the capacity and interest to pursue the philosophical road to ultimate happiness. But what about the rest of people, the majority of the population, who don't have this capacity or interest? Well, this, to Al-Farabi, is where the prophets come in. It is the role of the prophet to take the same truth that the philosophers arrive at through demonstrative reasoning and turn it into a rhetorical form that can be properly understood by the general population, by most people in society. Some would of course, say that this sort of undermines the role of the prophet and almost puts him in a secondary position next to a philosopher. And while this wouldn't be entirely wrong to say something like that, one should be careful not to generalize as well. There's a whole ocean of interesting things to talk about when it comes to al-Farabi, and not all of these can fit into this. He was also a musician, for example, and wrote extensively on music theory. He was an oud player, much like al-Kindi was, and it is sometimes thought that al-Farabi is actually the one, or the person who added the fifth string to the oud, to the, to the Arabic lute. However, some argue that it was actually al-Kindi who added the fifth string, Or possibly it was none of them. The point is that music and and music theory was an important point or important part of al-Farabi's writings and philosophy. He wrote, among other things, an extensive work called Kitab al-Musiqa al-Kabir, or The Great Book of Music, in which he talks about several aspects of Arabic music theory, including the modal system, the sort of scale system, modal system, known as maqamāt. Music was closely connected to mathematics, and there may have been some influence from the Pythagorean theories of harmonic ratios. Al-Farabi, for example, distinguishes between uh, theoretical and practical aspects of music, and in his great book of music he tackles subjects such as instruments, which he divides into natural instruments, including the human voice, and artificial instruments, which includes uh, pipes and lutes like the oud and so on. He talks about melodies and rhythm and how melodies are constructed, as well as what those melodies, based on how they are constructed, can invoke or symbolize. He played a pretty important role in systematizing music theory in the Arabic language, something that thinkers like Ibn Sina would later pick up on, but he also influenced some later Latin music theorists. Al-Farabi thus, in an indirect way, has influenced our own European music sort of tradition, uh, just as he has other fields of philosophy. After traveling and riding for many years and without really gaining any fame during his own lifetime, it is thought that Al-Farabi passed away in Damascus in the year 950. Al-Kindi and al-Farabi were both significant early figures in the Falsafa tradition. They differed on some significant points and ideas like the question of the eternity of the world, but they left a lasting impact on the future of Muslim philosophy and on the intellectual history of the world in general. They arose out of a cultural context in which the gathering of knowledge was one of the main agendas, and in which an institution like the House of Wisdom, the Beit al-Hikmah in Baghdad, could flourish. The period from about the start of the translation movement and the early Abbasid Caliphate to around the turn of the first millennium is sometimes referred to as the Golden Age of Islam. And while there are some problems related to that statement, it is true that the intellectual activity and achievements of this period is incredibly significant and something that should be highly admired. The following centuries saw further developments and periods of great flourishing, as well as periods of stagnation and setbacks, and there are a number of subjects and people that I would love to cover, but for now I hope this has been satisfactory in at least sort of instigating a hunger within you for more knowledge. I'll see you next time.